So tonight, we're kind of continuing talking about some broad principles of interpretation. This will be the last night um, that we spend talking about broad principles. Uh, and then next week, we're going to kind of have a, a pretty hard shift and start really getting into some nitty-gritty stuff that I'm pretty excited about. That's what's going to be really good. So what I want to talk about is these are things that regardless of which book of the Bible, which passage of the Bible, which part of the Bible, um, whether you're talking about an entire book or a, or a chapter or even a verse, these, these principles will apply and help you be a more effective student of the Bible. And all of these are fairly straightforward. I think they'll be pretty easy for you to remember. Um, but these are things that you really should bring to the table every single time you open up your Bible. The first one that I want us to talk about is that we should read the Bible as a book that points to Jesus. We should read the Bible as a book that points to Jesus. Turn with me to uh, John chapter 5. We're going to do some flipping around tonight. John chapter 5. For those of you on the internet, we are already begun, and I'm going to catch you up. We are now on the very first principle, which is read the Bible as a book that points to Jesus. For those of you at home, you can go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 5, and uh, we'll begin in verse 39 together. All right, we're called up. John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. God's word says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is, them, it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now in, in the gospel of John, as Jesus is quoting this in his life, what does he mean by the word scriptures? The law, maybe what we would call the Old Testament, right? So what Jesus is talking about here is the Old Testament. Now, when we think about the scriptures pointing to Christ, I think most of the time we would think about the New Testament. We would think about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We would think about the Epistles. We would think about maybe even the Revelation. When we think about uh, Jesus being at the center of the scriptures, we think about, most often, the New Testament because that's when Jesus' earthly ministry begins and then kind of the aftermath, right? The glorious aftermath. But what Jesus teaches us in John chapter 5 is that all of the scriptures bear witness about him. All of the scriptures are talking about him. And here he is specifically talking to us about the Old Testament. That what is Genesis about? Genesis is about Jesus. What is Exodus about? Exodus is about Jesus. What is Psalms about? Psalms is about Jesus. What is the Song of Solomon about? The Song of Solomon is about Jesus. Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, all of them, every book of the law, every book of the scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, all of it points to Christ. There's another passage um, that talks about this. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. I, some of you have probably heard me tell, say this before, but I think that if there was one point in, G, in, uh, the, in the Bible in which I could go back in time and be there as an eyewitness, it would be in Luke chapter 24 on the Emmaus Road. So you'll know this is right after the resurrection. So Jesus has died. He's been in the belly of the earth for three days. He has risen in resurrection glory. And so now he's kind of in a form, and people don't even recognize him, and he's on the Emmaus Road. And listen to what it says in verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... 
He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Imagine that. Jesus starts in Genesis, and he goes through the whole Old Testament. Remember, the, the Pentateuch, beginning with the law of Moses, is in the very beginning. The, the, what would have been called the writings, like First and Second Samuel, or First and Second Kings, or Psalms and Proverbs. Uh, all of that would have kind of made up the middle section of, of the Hebrew Scriptures, and then you would have had the prophets. And so Jesus is saying, from Genesis through the prophets, all of it, it's about me. And so he walks through those books with these men showing him, there I am, and there I am, and here's how this, mean, this, here's how this points to me, and here's how Leviticus points to me. And so he's walking through the whole Old Testament showing these men how it is that they all point to Christ. It was an amazing, amazing moment. So here's the point that I want to make to you. If we study or teach any part of the Bible including the Old Testament, without reference to Jesus the Savior, then we are preaching them wrong. We're teaching them wrong. We're studying them wrong. We should not study the Old Testament the same way that a Jewish rabbi would study the Old Testament. That a Jewish rabbi may have some helpful cultural things that could help us place it in its context. They might could have some good historical uh, context to kind of place it in its spot in history. But ultimately, we understand that all of the Old Testament points to Christ Jesus. All of the Old Testament is about the redemption of man and the process of redemption that the Lord God is unveiling progressively over the course of time to climax in Christ in the Gospels. So all of the Old Testament in some way, in some form, is pointing forward to Jesus Christ, whether it's speaking to our fallenness, or it's speaking to God's deliverance, or it's speaking to God's promises, or God's covenant, or God's people. All of it is God is using to point forward toward redemption. So when we open up our Bibles to, say, the story of David and Goliath, the story there is not primarily how do we be like David. The story there is how is David, how does David and Goliath point to Christ? Is it not that, that Christ is going to slay our enemies for us? Slay our, I've, heard, I've heard it said, you know, that in the, in the story of David and Goliath, we always like to portray ourselves as David. When David is a type of Christ, he's pointing to Christ. Christ is David in the story. We are Israel up on the mountain trembling in our boots, right? And David is the deliverer of the people of Israel, but Christ is our deliverer. And so when we go to the Old Testament, it changes the way so many of us have become accustomed to, to reading it and to studying it. Typically, what's, what's been the norm for most Christians is they go to the Old Testament and they read it and they, they read about the person in the Old Testament. They say, okay, what about that person can I emulate? What about that person should I imitate? And, and that's not altogether wrong if, first and foremost, you understand how that is fitting into the, to the, to the redemption story, okay? Now, look, I know that's a little bit overwhelming, and so what we're going to do in the next two or three weeks is we're going to spend our time figuring out how is it that we find Christ in all the scriptures. How, how do we do it? Because there, there's, there have to be some guardrails here. Because what can happen as we seek to find Christ in all of scriptures is we can begin to kind of take some superficial paths and we can begin to see things to, about, that, are, that we think point to Jesus that really don't point to Jesus. You know, like some people do a thing with colors and like the word red will be there and they'll be like, well, clearly that's talking about the blood of Jesus which talks about my righteousness, which talks about my redemption, which is a completely unhelpful way of studying the scriptures and it's not representative of really what we're supposed to do. And 
it, it makes it feel like we have to have some kind of Gnostic, mythical knowledge to be able to read the Bible, and that's not helpful at all. So what I want to teach you, I want us to spend some time learning, is I want us to spend some time learning how is it that we can see Christ in all of scriptures as God really intended for us to see him. How do we see Christ in Genesis? And how do we see Christ in Leviticus? How do we see Christ in the Psalms? How do we see Christ in Isaiah? How do we see Christ in the Gospels and in the Epistles and in, uh, in, in the uh, Revelation? How do we see Christ in each of those various places in ways that are true to Scripture and not superficial? Um, so we're going to spend a lot, of, a lot of time doing that, all right? So the first one is, is we have to read the book, Bible as a book that points to Jesus. In other words, we have to read the Bible, the whole Bible starting in the book of Genesis, as though we are actually a Christian, as though we live knowing about the cross, knowing about the resurrection, knowing about the deliverance that is offered to us in Christ Jesus. The second principle, general principle that I want us to, uh, to have tonight is that we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. This is probably the most important principle that I could teach you. That the best way, the best tool that you have to interpret your Bible is your Bible. The best tool that you have to understanding uh, Romans is Galatians and the other epistles of Paul and the other parts of the New Testament. That all of those help us to understand and interpret rightly what we see in one, sp one specific segment of it. That's one of the reasons here that we really, really prioritize reading through the whole Bible. Most Christians today have not read this whole book. And yet this is the book that they have committed their lives to. The, the, the things that are taught here are literally what they have said I will lay down and die for. This is what I'm going to base my family on and base my life on. And most have not read all of it. And so the reason that that's important is because you really can't understand parts of Scripture if you don't understand holes of, the whole of Scripture. You, you can get glimpses of it, but it will blow your mind when you, when you read the whole Bible for the very first time. All of a sudden, the dots that start connecting. I, I remember... Sitting in there, uh, I, was, I remember the first time I was reading through the whole Bible, and I was reading through Leviticus, and I was kind of in all the, the uh, laws about uncleanness and stuff like that, and you know what, those are kind of uncomfortable laws to read. I don't know if you guys are real familiar with them, with them but they kind of, you know what, there wasn't a whole lot of modesty in the Hebrew writings, okay? They just, they just threw it all out there, you know? Like, you can't take up the offering if you have a crushed testicle. You know what I mean? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a bizarre, bizarre, it's, it's hard to read sometimes, right? And I remember sitting there, and I was reading in Leviticus, and I thought, how in the world is this helping me? And, and, I, and, I, and I, rem I, re I remember realizing, you know, my spirit about this just isn't right. My spirit about this just isn't right. I began to ask the Lord, show me something. Show me something from this stuff on the uncleanness. And immediately my mind went to the woman with the issue of blood in Luke chapter 15. And I realized in a, in a depth and in a clarity that I had never seen before that that woman, it wasn't just that she was sick. She was excluded from the community. She was excluded from worship. She had to shout everywhere that she went, unclean, unclean. Everybody that she touched was polluted. Until she touched Jesus. And when she touched Jesus, Jesus wasn't polluted. She was made clean. And Jesus was not offended by her touch like every other man. She perhaps had not been touched by a man the entire time she had been sick. Maybe not another soul since she had been sick for like seven years. She touches Jesus 
Jesus does not take offense. He is not made unclean. She is made clean. And I remember thinking, that's what Jesus does with our sin. That's what Jesus does with our sin. And, and it was a connection that made in my head that was the only way I was able to see it was reading through, path, through, through the book of Leviticus, which I guess I had skipped every other time in the whole of my Christian life when I was reading the Bible, right? So let's, think, let's imagine when we turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29. Let me show you a little fun little passage for your Bible study. First uh, Corinthians fifteen twenty nine. <laughs> now, First Corinthians fifteen twenty nine is a fun little text that can just bless all of us, and uh, it's going to make for a really exciting worship service on Sunday. All right, let's 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 read it together. Otherwise. What do people mean by, ba- by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Okay, now, what if someone was to walk up to you? I guess you, you're aware that we do not baptize here people on behalf of the dead. Okay, so what if somebody at work came up to you and read to you 1 Corinthians 15, 29? Now, you all, we, have, we are committed students of the Bible. We are committed to the authority of the Bible. We are committed to saying the Bible is inerrant. We are committed to all of those things. And so what if somebody was to come up to you and they were read to you 1 Corinthians 15, 29 and ask you, why doesn't your church baptize people on behalf of the dead? What would you say? You would probably be dumbfounded, right? Uh, uh, because it's weird? You know, like that might be the best that we have because it's kind of, it's kind of freaky. It's kind of uncomfortable and weird, right? Is that what, are we supposed to baptize people on behalf of the dead? What in the world is Paul talking about? But see, this is why you need Scripture to interpret Scripture. First of all, there's a big picture principle here. There, there's a difference between a descriptive text and a prescriptive text. You guys know what I mean by that? A descriptive text tells you about something. It describes to you an event, right? It describes to you something that's going on. Like, like the book of Acts is descriptive. A prescriptive text says, thou shalt, like you should do this. This should be, I am prescribing to you something that must be in your life. Now what we need to understand in the Bible, there are things that the Bible describes that the Bible is not prescribing, okay? Polygamy. The Bible describes polygamy being in the life of its people at times, right? It never, it never, it never embraces it. It never celebrates it. It just says it's there. It is not prescribing polygamy, right? We go into the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit does extraordinary things in the book of Acts, things like none of us have ever seen before. And you have, like, Peter telling people that are blind, now you see in the name of Jesus, right? Like, but it's not prescribing to us that we are to do that. It is describing to us what Peter did in, under apostolic authority. That applies here too. Paul here is not prescribing to us that we are to go and baptize people on behalf of the dead. Instead, he is describing something that happens in the life of the church at Corinth. And if you'll know anything about the book, books 1 and 2 Corinthians, they are written to the church at Corinth because the church at Corinth is so unhealthy. Because the, church, because the church at Corinth has so many weird practices. 
And so it helps us if we can know the other, the other parts of the Bible. Nowhere else does the Bible uh, talk about this. Nowhere does the Bible actually uh, tell us to do this. Um, it would actually be in contradiction to other things that the Bible teaches. The Bible always shows a living believer being baptized in demonstration of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the new believer in Christ identifying with him. So it would actually put it in conflict with that. So, so in other words, if we were to do what it's saying in chapter 15, verse 29, we would be doing disobeying or doing things against what it says perhaps in like Romans 6, 1 through 4, right? So what we have here is we have Paul using a bad practice of the church at Corinth, describing it to help illustrate his teaching about the resurrection. So Paul, in, in, the, in the context of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, is teaching them that we are going to have a physical, bodily resurrection. That we are not just going to be raised up by Jesus as these disembodied spirits floating around in the cosmos. That God created us with a body, and he is going to raise us physically with a body, a glorified body. Keith's going to be able to walk for like ever, okay? Glorified feet, glorified legs, glorified abs. It's going to be awesome, okay? And so he is, saying, he is saying to them, you have trouble believing that there's going to be a physical resurrection, and yet you baptize people on behalf of the dead? Like, what sense does that make? Paul's using it as an illustration. And so it's very helpful for us to take what we know about Scripture and see about Scripture and help it to, uh, and use it to, to make it, to, to clarify something. So a, a general principle under that would be that we need to use the passages that are really clear in Scripture to help us with the passages that are less clear in Scripture. You know, there are, there are some passages in Scripture and you think, what in the world does that mean? Right? Like it's hard and it's unclear and you and you just think like I don't even know how to I don't even know how to process that. And so what you need to do is go to those passages that are most clear. But remember, God makes in his word most clear those things that are most important. He couldn't give us a comprehensive book that made everything perfectly clear because he is infinite and we are finite. We talked a little bit about that in the interview on Sunday, right? But God makes those things that are most important, most clear in his book that we could hold fast to them. And so then if, we have, if we're struggling with something that's unclear in the book of Galatians, then we might go to the book of Romans, which is written by the same author, superintended by the same Holy Spirit, and what was unclear in Galatians might become much, much clearer in the book of Romans. And so it, it, the Bible, the Romans, would almost function like a commentary to Galatians. Or maybe you're reading, like, like you know, I've been preaching through Matthew for some time now. And sometimes, like this past week, uh, preaching on the Transfiguration, that's a hard passage to preach. You know, like there's not a lot of straight up application in the transfiguration. And so to wrap my mind around the transfiguration, I turn to the very same account in Mark chapter 8 and the very same account in Luke chapter 9. That Mark chapter 8 and Luke chapter 9 tell the very same story and I can use them almost as a type of commentary to help me wrap my mind around what's happened in Matthew chapter 17. So, so I'm using those books to help interpret the book that I'm studying because it's talking about the same thing. And yet they each give a little bit of a different detail. They kind of each have a different, a different voice, a different tone to them. And it's helpful for me wrapping my mind around. Also, observing the full breadth of text that speak to a specific subject can help you understand that subject better. All right, let me give you an example. So the Bible talks a lot about circumcision, 
And so it, we might have difficulty of understanding, like, in our context, what, what are we supposed to make of circumcision? So we, we might open up to Genesis 17, 10 through 12, and it tells us that God commands his male worshipers to be circumcised. But then we might turn to the New Testament and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19. It says circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. And if we're not careful students of the Bible, we read Genesis 17 and 1 Corinthians 7, and it appears as those we're getting opposing views. It, it, it's, it's confusing. Like, do they have to be circumcised, or do they not have to be circumcised? And so what's helpful for us is to find all of the texts that pertain to that subject, and what you'll see is that over the course of redemptive history, what the Lord is doing is he is painting a picture for us. That in the old covenant, before the Holy Spirit came, before Christ Jesus came, the Lord used physical circumcision to set apart his people, to mark his people as being distinct from all of other peoples on the earth. But now that the Holy Spirit has come, Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit circumcises our heart. That he marks us not with outward sign, but with inward transformation. That we are being formed in the image of Christ. And now the law of God is written onto our hearts. So we are marked as the people of God by the circumcision of the heart done by the Holy Spirit. So, so it's the same general principle, but we can understand why in the new covenant in Christ Jesus... Physical circumcision isn't necessary because we have what they didn't have in the Old Covenant. We have circumcision of the heart. That, that's what made the Old Covenant obsolete, as Hebrews chapter 8 said. So a good uh, Hebrews 10, 1 uh, says that the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And so we, we go to a passage like that, and it helps us to put into place some of the way the, the Old Testament is pointing forward to the New Testament and ultimately translates into something completely new um, as the Holy Spirit comes and takes residence in us. Okay, so for the first principle, read the Bible as a book that points to Jesus. The second principle, let Scripture interpret Scripture. The third principle, take note of the literary genre. Take note of the literary genre. We've talked some about this, and when, when we come back together, I think in August or September, so, so we're going to talk about how to interpret Christ in, the, in all of Scripture uh, for the next couple of weeks. And then when the school year ends, we're going to end this class temporarily. We're going to uh, take a break, and we're going to read a book together, a very short book uh, on evangelism. And then we're going to reconvene in the fall. And when we reconvene in the fall, we're going to spend all of our time studying literary genres and, and how to properly interpret them. Um, so what do I mean by that? So the Bible is um, a really big book made up of a lot of chapters, okay? I like to think almost of the individual books as chapters, but each one of those is spoken through a human author, spoken through human language, and given to us in a different genre. So in some of, the, some of, some of what we read is just historical narrative. It, that's most of the Bible is historical narrative, and that's just telling of the story, telling what happened, right? The Gospels are, are mostly historical narrative. You go uh, and you read Genesis about all the patriarchs, about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that's mostly historical narrative. Then you get into like Psalms, and you have this poetry, right? There's a whole lot of poetry in the Bible. Well, you read poetry different than you read a history book, don't you? Like, you read Emily Dickinson a bit different than you read your, your a uh, a... a explanation of Nazi Germany and the Third Reich, 
Like, it's just a different kind of reading. You understand that the words that they're going to use is different. The purpose that, of, of what it's trying to invoke in you and teach you is different. Um, it, it's just, it's completely different. Well, the scriptures are the same way. And so depending on the genre that you're reading, you have to kind of calibrate your mind so that you interpret it rightly. If you're reading poetry, you don't want to read it like it's a history book. If you're reading a prophecy, you don't want to read those words the same way that you read for Samuel. It's different. The, the, the language is different. Let me give you some examples. So in the Psalms, we, we can expect poetic language like the sun rises. Like we've used that example before, before right? But if we're, reading, if we're reading it as history, then we're thinking, man, or if we're reading it as science, we're thinking, man, this doesn't, the Bible doesn't know much about science. What does the Bible know? The sun doesn't rise. The earth spins on its axis around the sun. The earth is on, resolu- is on revolutions around the, around the sun. The, the sun is not rising. The earth is spinning. What kind of book is this, right? But if we know that this is poetry written by men from the perspective of men to communicate in emotive language, then we can see, yeah, from, from the perspective of a man, the sun does rise. And every day that the sun rises, it speaks to the faithfulness of the Lord that the Lord is always there and the mercies of the Lord are new every day, right? So, so the way understanding the genre helps us to properly interpret the passage. Another example that I like to give is Proverbs. That if we read Proverbs as promises, or even if we read Proverbs as prophecies, we can get ourselves into a lot of trouble because the book of Proverbs assumes exceptions. The book of Proverbs assumes exceptions. So if you read every proverb as being hard and fast promise, when you see an exception, what do you believe? The Bible must not be wrong, or God lied to me, or God isn't even there at all. Let me give you an example. Proverb 10.4 says this, Lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring us wealth. Lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. Now, does anybody know an exception to that proverb all of us do right all of us know lazy people that are rich maybe i'm wrong but paris hilton doesn't strike me as being the epitome of a work mule you know like i don't really see paris hilton you know waking up every day to put her nose to the grindstone maybe maybe i don't know but then on the other side of it you know i can think about my granddad who worked hard his whole life, and got to the end of it and had nothing to show for it. I can think about my, my dad. My dad's a hardworking man. My dad's not wealthy, right? So, so, so there's exceptions there, right? There's exceptions in there. So if we take that as a hard and fast rule, then we're thinking, man, what's this about? But on the other side, is that a good principle of life? That if I work hard at the end of the day, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be able to provide for my family. I'm gonna be able to take, I may even be able to leave something to the generation that comes after me. Yeah, that's a sound principle. If I'm lazy, does that mean that my family's going to suffer and that we might go bankrupt and my, we might be hungry or we might have to depend on the government or whatever? Yeah. Does that mean that everybody that does that, that they were lazy? No. No. That's just talking about a general principle, that there is a system to life is what the book of Proverbs understands, and that God built that system, and that the way to human thriving is to operate in accord with the systems that the Lord has built. And the difference would be Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, 
you'll be saved. Now, if you read that like a proverb with exceptions, there's a problem because that's a promise, right? Like we want that to be true, that everyone who believes with their heart and confesses with their mouth that Lord Jesus was raised from the dead and is the Savior of the world and repents of their, every single one of them will be saved. That's a promise. I mean, we can hold fast to that and we can take that to the bank. In the Bible, there's a lot of hyperbole. All right, so turn with me to Matthew 5, 38. So when I, when I say the word hyperbole, to make sure we're all clear, hyperbole means like exaggerated language. So, so it's something that's spoken in really big words, in really big language, to kind of drive home a point. I'm kind of famous for being hyperbolic, right? Like that's... Uh, the, uh, the, other, the other pastor sometimes like, man, you didn't have to say it like that strong, right? So, all right, so let's look at an example of, of some hyperbole uh, in the teachings of Jesus. 538 says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. All right, so if you take the Bible perfectly literal, then I'm telling you I want to borrow $100,000. Pay up. Pay up. You have to. If you're, if you're a Christian and you're going to abide by the words of Christ and I beg you for $100,000, you have to give it to me. That's what he says, right? Unless you understand that in the Sermon on the Mount, in the context of what Jesus is saying, he's speaking in idiomatic language. He's speaking in language that was common of the day, that was, that was exaggerated for the purpose of driving home a point. <clears throat> so that you can understand the sacrificial self-denial that comes, the self-denying level of generosity and, and, and caregiving and, and compassion that his disciples are supposed to exhibit. Right? That's what he's teaching us. Just before that, he says that if your right eye causes you to sin, you should gouge it out. If your right arm causes you to sin, you should cut it off. Well, every single disciple of Jesus that has ever lived has had their right eyes cause them to sin and their right arm cause them to sin. And yet they didn't walk around as one-armed pirates. Right? Because they understood what Jesus was saying. Take your sin seriously. Take your sin seriously. Put it to death. Don't be okay with it. Be hostile to your sin, right? So, but we have to know. Some places in Scripture, it may not be as clear. So we have, to, we have to read Scripture thoughtfully in the genre that it was written so that we can interpret it properly and apply it properly to our lives and get as much help from it as possible. All right, now turn with me to Mark chapter 7. That's going to bring us to our next principle. Mark chapter 7, verse 24, is a, uh, it's a story that we've preached on a few weeks ago here um, from Matthew 16, 15, 15 or 16. Um, I think it was 15. And it's gonna, I want us to, what, the principle that I want us to see here is that we need to be, be aware of historical and cultural background issues, all right? So Matthew 17, 7, verse 24 says this, and from there he arose and went away 
to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement you may go away. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Now, at first reading, Jesus seems incredibly unkind, doesn't he? At, at first reading, Jesus seems, he seems racist. There, there is a person here, a Syrophoenician, a Gentile by birth, and Jesus looks to her, and he uses what is a slang term in his day, and he calls her a dog. Now, this is jolting to us, and the story is supposed to be jolting to us. But what we need is the context, the cultural context. Jesus is doing two things here. First of all, he's trying to teach his disciples that first he came to the Jews and the Jews have rejected him. The Jews have not acknowledged him. The disciples themselves are not getting it. And yet here's the one that they call a dog. The one that they think is beneath them. And she comes to them as one who believes in him, one who has faith in his abilities. So he's, he's showing his disciples in the cultural context that the ones that they look down their nose upon are the very ones that are going to be great in the kingdom of God. The ones that can see clearly who he is when the people that he was revealed to and has been, has been prophesied to come and has now come are rejecting him. And further with her, first of all, it's important to read in the context here that she doesn't take offense, does she? So apparently, the way that Jesus is saying this to her is not offensive. It's not unkind. She, she, she's, she can see body language and facial expression and hear tone in a way that you and I can't. Just reading it, right? But we know that Jesus here is drawing her faith out ultimately to commend her. In Matthew 16, he, sa he, he, he says how, what great faith this is to be seen in this woman, right? But to understand this passage and to understand the magnitude of what is happening and the, and the immensity of the picture that Jesus is painting for us to understand and for the disciples to understand, we have to have the historical context to understand what all of that means. We have to understand in Jesus' day, what did it mean that this woman came to him as a Syrophoenician? What did that mean that she was a Gentile? What, what, what was the big deal about that? What does it mean that is it significant even that a woman is talking to Jesus? And it is. First of all, a Jewish man in Jesus' context would not be seen in public talking to a Jewish woman. It was a great offense. Let alone, and then in Jesus' context, a Jew would not be seen talking to a Gentile in public. And what do we see with Jesus? Jesus is not just talking to a woman. Jesus is not just talking to a Gentile. Jesus is talking to a Gentile woman. Trampling cultural barriers. Some massive implications there, right? But to understand the beauty of that passage, you really need the, the context. You really need to know what's going on in the background there. You really need to know what's happening. Because if you just read that on first glance, does that story sound beautiful to you? 
It doesn't, does it? It doesn't sound beautiful at all. But when you hear it explained, it sounds beautiful, doesn't it? It sounds beautiful. It's, it's powerful. It's a picture of the transcendent picture of the transcendent power of the gospel over all cultural lines, over all human barriers, and how God did not just come for Israel, but God came for the world through the Lord Jesus. And that all of us who are lowly in the kingdom of earth can come and have faith and be exalted in the kingdom of heaven. It's a beautiful picture, but you need the context. Often, some, some, some helpful background information will take, take what is a good passage and it will make it a glorious passage in your life. It's amazing the difference. Content. And all you really need for, to, to do this is everybody needs a good study Bible. I'm going to bring some of those so that you can see. I recommend the ESV study Bible. Um, Zondervan has one, the Zondervan NIV study Bible, which is, I think is very good. Um, but you just need a basic study Bible. And it gives you these kind of details that you're going to be able to draw these things out with to, to be able to get the context and to know what's going on in the day. And we're going, to, we're going to work a lot together on how to do that and what that looks like. And I'm going to show you kind of how to use the study Bible and how to make that a part of your regular Bible study in a way that's not going to add hours to your study, but it's going to make very, be very, very, very helpful in you understanding what's going on in the, in the context of what's happening, okay? All right, next, this is a simple principle, but we need to read the Bible in community. I wanted us to practice this together, but time's not going to allow it. Um, but my, my professor in seminary, uh, my hermeneutics professor in seminary was a guy named Dr. Plummer, and Dr. Plummer is an extraordinary uh, teacher. But he used to say this, he said, reading the Bible alone is how cults are formed, Right? That you get a dude with a Bible and some sketchy grass and he goes up on a mountain and he comes down with some special revelation and then the, the next thing you know, man, everybody's drinking Kool-Aid down in South America, you know? Like that's how it happens, right? That there's a reason that God gave us one another. There's a reason that God gave us the church. There's a reason that God didn't just give the Bible to individuals, but God gave the Bible to a community, to a family, to the church, right? He gave us pastors. He gave us teachers. He gave us elders and deacons. He gave all of this, and he gave the Bible into the midst of that so that we could study it and read it together. Because what all of us do is we kind of form guardrails for each other, don't we? Like, if, if you come away and you read and say, well, Jesus thinks women that are from uh, Syrophoenicia are, are dogs, somebody can push back and say, man, I don't, think, I don't think you got that right. I don't think you got that right. We need to, let's study that a little bit further. Let's go a little bit deeper into that, right? Lots of people come up with lots of crazy ideas and attribute them to the Bible. And if you don't have somebody in your life, if you're not reading it with people in your life that can press back against you, and say, maybe you should study a little bit deeper. Maybe, maybe, you should, maybe you should read it a little more carefully. Or maybe, what, maybe, maybe this is a better way to think about it. You're missing out. You're missing out. And it's much more likely that you're going to have grave theological errors. And that is no small deal. It is no small deal to attribute to God that which is not from God. It is no small error to attribute something false to God that God never said and God never intended. And so we need each other. And not only that, but if you read it, like tonight what I wanted to do is I wanted us to turn to uh, John chapter 
10 and just meditated on it for, for a few minutes and, and then let you guys talk. And what you would have found is, is that every single person at your table would have discovered something different. That they would have meditated on that passage for five minutes and they would have seen something that you didn't see. And so you, it would have been encouraged by it. It's, it's powerful to come together and, and, and I can tell you what's going on in my life and how that passage just, just penetrated my soul and how it just rocked my world and I was convicted about this and I was challenging that and I was inspired by that. And then you can come and with that same passage, say, yeah, and you know what I saw? And tell me something that, from the exact same passage that's perfectly in context that did the same thing for you. And then both of us leave challenged and both of us leave encouraged, right? That's what it's supposed to look like in the church. That's the goal in our Sunday school classes and in our D groups. And uh, that's, the, that's why we gather each week to preach, right? The, the Lord gave us preachers because we need to hear from them sometimes, right? It's helpful. And then the final principle for generally studying the Bible is that you just have to work really, really hard. Like it, it, it's, I'm not going to pretend that uh, it, it's not work to study the Bible. But work is not bad. Work is good. Work is biblical, Right? That you, you find a satisfaction and you can find a purpose in work that you just don't find in being idle. That you don't find watching, you know, three episodes of Everybody Loves Raymond that you've already seen four times, right? Like take, taking some of that time and doing some work is far more gratifying. I tell people all the time, the, the most satisfying things in your life, the things in your life that bring you the greatest joy, that bring you the greatest satisfaction, that bring you the greatest purpose are the things that you probably had to work the hardest for. Look at your kids, right? <laughs> That'll work you. But man, don't you take joy in seeing them and seeing, watching them be, be molded into men and women of honor and men and women of, of integrity. And, you know, some days you doubt, but, but then, you know, you, you, you catch those glimpses, right? And you think, you know what? The hard work was worth it. The hard work was worth it. Maybe it's in school or it's at, in your job or it's at home, whatever. You know, I love, you know, this makes me sound, I guess I'm an old soul. That's what Megan says. I'm an old soul, okay? So I, I love to garden. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that happened. But I, I love to, I, like, I love landscaping and, and working in my yard. And look, my yard is a work in progress, but I'm like two years out for yard of the year in my neighborhood. That's, that's, what, I, that's what I'm aiming at, you know. And nobody else even knows there's a competition, but I know there's a competition, you know. And so two years out, I'm going to be yard of the year. And, uh, and, and I, the reason that I love to work in the yard, first of all, it just clears my head. Like, it just clears my head. I can go out, and I, I love to spend like eight, nine hours on a Saturday just out there. You know, I can come in, take an extended lunch, work at my pace, do my thing, you know. But what I like is at the end of the day, you can tell you did something. You can tell you did something, you know. You, you, can, you can, it just looks better. It's gratifying. And, you know, Bible study is a lot like that. It's, it, it's laborious, and it, 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 it takes a lot out of you sometimes, and it takes, it takes discipline, and it takes commitment. But it's remarkably gratifying when you, sit, when you close your Bible and you just realize the God of the universe just spoke to me. The God of the universe just said something to me. That's as good as it gets, y'all. That's as good as it gets. Most people have never heard God speak because most people have never put in the work in the word of God. This is how he speaks to us. This is how he speaks to us. And if you have a Bible 
and you have commitment and you have the Spirit of God to illuminate the Scriptures for you, I'm telling you the Lord will speak to you. The Lord will speak to you. The work, the discipline is worth it. It's worth it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer tonight. Heavenly Father,